Republicans have a good chance to win Minnesota. Are they going to win Minnesota? No. You never know. You don't. <laughs> you should have picked Klobuchar. <laughs> anyway, we're recording in three, two, one. Recording. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 30th, 2020. Is it four days to go? Three days to go? Some number of hours to go? We're within 100 hours? We're within 96 hours? Something like that? I'm John Podhorts, the editor of Commentary. Did I say that already? <laughs> I did. did now. You're okay, about to good. have your who am I moment. <laughs> I, I, who am I? <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> um, that's uh, senior writer Christine Rosen making fun of me as I deserve. <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman, who is um, very uh, uh, skeptical of the notion that the state of Texas is in play, uh, a state where um, more votes have now been cast uh, early than have ever been cast uh, throughout an election uh, in Texas, more than 9 million, which means that we could be seeing turnout in the range of 12 to 13 to 14 million in the state of Texas, a turnout something like 85 to 90 percent, some crazy number like that of, of, of eligible voters. Um. Nobody knows what this means, uh, except that, you know, it wouldn't be happening if Democrats weren't turning out in record numbers in Texas. Uh, and if younger voters weren't turning out in record numbers in Texas, that doesn't mean that the natural Republican advantage in Texas, which is, I think, a million has classically been looked at as like a million and a half votes banked in the pot, you know, it isn't still there. Um, but remember, Ted Cruz only lost by three points in 2018 to Beto O'Rourke in the Senate race. And so, uh, put simply, uh, Texas, which like Florida, uh, will count its vote early. Um, obviously, if Texas or Florida or both, you know, come in for, for Biden. I mean, if Texas comes in for Biden, the election is over, whether or not it takes five days to count Pennsylvania or not. And uh, I think probably people do agree that if Florida comes in for Biden, it's it's over because Trump doesn't have a doesn't have a map without without Florida, which is um, which has twenty nine electoral votes. Uh, I mean, I, he has a map where he wins literally everywhere else that he ever ha- has to win with no question, and sort of like squeaks uh, by with uh, two hundred and seventy seven electoral votes or something like that. Or, but um, so that that's where that's where we are. Noah, your skepticism, please. Voice your skepticism. Yeah, okay. Um, so according to the Real Clear Politics average, um, Donald Trump is up by an average of over two points there. Um, his numbers are driven down by Quinnipiac, which has a very significant Democratic House effect, um, and UMass Lowell, which uh, I I'm willing to discount because it rounds to the tenths of a point. It's um, not a scientific You should explain here, house effect, what you mean by democratic it's... house effect. Um, the, the organization has a uniform across the board, notable lean in one direction or another toward one partisan group or another. And Quinnipiac has become something of an object of uh, not derision or scorn, but um skepticism, cautious mockery, 
because it has a Democratic House effect. So they have Texas tied. Everywhere else has the president up between seven and four points. Um, and that's not particularly close. There was one real weird exception, which had, was just the Dallas Morning News, which actually had Joe Biden very competitive there within three point, a three-point um, lead over Donald Trump, with Donald Trump getting 45% of the vote in, in um, Texas. If Donald Trump gets 45% of the vote in Texas, uh, I don't know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll think of something really humiliating to do um, because that's not going to happen. Texas is forever on the cusp of turning Democratic. For my entire adult life, it has been, this is the election cycle where it's, it's 1976 again. Um, it's not. Well, well, why not? There's a lot of places that Democrats why are going to make significant gains. They're going to make significant gains Hold across on. the Sun why, Belt. Why, why, why is that? Because Texas has a stronger partisan Republican lean than Arizona and Georgia and Florida, where they're just barely competitive, where Democrats are barely competitive. Um, it has to have, there has to be a little, it would be a shocker. Look, if this is a real wild realignment election, a lot of crazy things are going to happen. And crazy things could include Texas going blue. So you can't rule it out. But you can't, if you're expecting, I'm not expecting it, it, look, you can't rule out a lot of things. You can't rule out the rapture. Well, I'm sorry. It's, it's that is, sort of things that could sorry, happen. You cannot compare a Democratic presidential candidate doing better in Texas than any Democratic presidential candidate has done in three decades with the rapture. I mean, you know, that's just not a, that's not a can fair I, can comparison. I throw, let me throw one little Speaking spanner. as somebody who knows a lot about the rapture, yes, Christine. I will, I will hear no words against the rapture. Yes. Um, I'll throw a little spanner in the works here and say uh, one unusual thing this election cycle, and we know this has just happened. El Paso is, is instituting a new lockdown. Uh, cases, COVID cases are spiking in various areas around Texas. So that might, I know we've had a lot of early voting, but that the the, the constant concerns about the pandemic have are you know Texas is in some ways a little bit more like the Midwest right now. They're seeing a lot more activity um, and hospitalizations and and the kind of numbers that you don't want to see if you're an incumbent in terms of uh, this pandemic. So that could be that right. that could certainly affect people's right. feelings about the vote. Right. It, it, I, could, it could also inspire the, the anti lockdown. Yes, uh, that's true. I that's mean, kind of late in the game to figure out that, that that's the side you're on. That's but. the other thing. <laughs> that's the other thing. That there's reciprocity here that we're not accounting for. Sure, there's huge republic or huge Democratic turnout, but Republicans are enthusiastic. Republican voters, if you're a partisan Republican voter, you are enthusiastic to get out and vote for Donald Trump. We have no evidence that there's an enthusiasm gap here at all. So if you just have a partisan advantage. You can expect that that partisan advantage isn't going to be completely overcome. No, but of overcome. course, then there are the you know enormous numbers of voters who are neither Democratic nor Republican who are going to be the deciding factors in the election, and they are also apparently turning out in record numbers. And this is the big question: is who who are they? Obviously, in Florida, uh, the Democrats and Republicans seem to be battling to uh, pretty close to a draw in terms of how they're doing on the early vote with. Uh, Republicans uh, crushing it in um, uh, in-person early voting and, uh, and Democrats crushing it in mail voting. Uh, but in both ca- both cases, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of no party uh, of no party voters who are doing both. And then we'll have the day of vote and all of that. So it's uh, it's it's all very interesting. The one thing uh, that does seem to be going on is that while uh, Biden is pushing Trump 
in Florida, in Georgia, in Texas, in North Carolina, and then, of course, in the three states that won him the election, uh, and Ohio, which did not win him the election, Trump does not appear to be pushing Biden anywhere. Uh, and so, you know, that's part of the story here is that is that Trump can't really afford to lose. I mean, he can afford to lose two of the three Midwestern states if he keeps everything that he won in 2016. But um, he can't really afford to lose anywhere. And uh, Biden can, you know, Biden is sort of already around 245 electoral votes if you really sort of take states that are like outside the margin of error in polling. And so he kind of has a margin (laughs) to take stuff away from Trump. None of that, that could be nothing. It could mean that, you know, the story of the election will be that there was this historic polling error and that, uh, which is where we are now. We are now in the category of polling itself being invalidated by a result that leads to uh, Trump's victory without question. We have, you know, a, a, a norm, an extraordinary majority of polls showing Biden getting, if you were to take them as determinative, close to 340 electoral votes. If you were 320 at the at a, at a minimum, if you don't look at them as determined, if they're if they're not determinative, and in fact they are misreading it, and Trump wins 286 electoral votes and takes the presidency. That's that's it. Like every assumption, every model, every this, every that is now out the window. But I want to share with you, that's what I really wanted to kind of take this up as we start, which is I went back and looked at the single key leading indicator of presidential results going back as far as we can really go back, which is Nixon in 72 involving presidents seeking reelection and what statistic most precisely parallels the result of the election. And that is presidential approval on the verge or, you know, on, on the, you know, on the sort of the, the very tip of the election. And the, the presidential approval rate, either, either in poll averages or in Gallup, which was really the only one doing this until the mid-80s, except for CBS, um, the last presidential approval rating, as, as close as you can get it to the election, eerily mirrors the result nationally, not state by state, but nationally. So I'll give you an example. And it, sometimes it underestimates the vote, but most of the time it doesn't. So let me just uh, give this to you now. Obama, the uh, day before 2012. Uh, got uh, 50.1 was uh, the job approval. Do you approve or disapprove his job as president in the real clear politics average 50.1 to 47.1. And Obama got, I think 50.9 George W. Bush in 2004. Do you approve or disapprove 49.7 approve 46.7 disapprove Bush got 50.5. Clinton job approval before 1996 election, 54 to 36. Clinton got 49.5%. So that number was off. Dole got 40%. That, of course, was um, kind of blurred because there was was Perot was in there getting uh, 8 or 9%. 1992, George H.W. Bush job approval the week before the election. He has 34% approval. 
64% disapproval. In the end, Bush got 37.5%. So Perot and Clinton together added up to 60, what is that? That's uh, 62.5%, just a little hair off his overall disapproval number. Nixon in 72, 58% job approval. He got 61. Reagan in 1984, 58% job approval. He got 59%. Carter in September 1980, because I, I couldn't find a poll you know, closer to the election, got 37% uh, job approval. He ended up with 41% of the vote. So job approval, you know, with... Uh, you know, some growth on the on the on the on the lower end uh, is incredibly determinative uh, historically in these re-election bids. And Trump today, in the Real Clear Politics average, is at forty four percent approval and fifty three point one percent disapproval. Or in the five thirty eight average, he is at forty three point nine percent approval and fifty two point eight percent disapproval. So if this tracks, if that's close, if it's within a point or a point and a half, uh, Trump will do worse than he did in 2016 nationally. Um, and no president has been reelected with an approval rating, you know, under 49, let's say, or that can't round up to 50. Bush had 50, Obama had 50, Clinton had 54, uh, H.W. Bush had 37, Nixon had 58, Reagan had 58. Carter, H.W. Bush, uh, both had, you know, were in the 30s. So uh, you can say, well, obviously, if Trump were in the 30s, he wouldn't win. And maybe being in the low 40s, which is where he's been, or low to mid-low 40s, uh, is, is better. Uh, but that's my report on job approval. Okay, well, that's nationally, right? So you're anticipating roughly 44% of the... Well, I'm not anticipating. Like I say, it could be 45. Could be 45. Okay. Could be 45. All right, so we got 46 last time around. So that's not entirely hard to envision. Um, I think George W. Bush improved on his performance in 2004. No, no. No, no. But most of the time you're expecting... Reagan, Nixon, uh, and George W. Bush... Vastly improved on their vote in reelect. Obama is the only person to right. lose votes in his reelect. Obama lost nine percent off his two thousand eight total. Uh, yeah, so it's tough to come back from that. If we were to have a forty five percent national vote total, Joe Biden would be up. We have a majority of the vote, and because um, nobody expects the third party votes to get anywhere near what they got in twenty sixteen, so that's pretty much it for for Donald Trump. But what we've been talking about over the last couple of days is two consecutive cycles that have failed to capture the Republican vote in a lot of key states, most of which are pretty Republican states. So while that doesn't salvage his prospects, um, particularly in the upper Midwest, places in the Sun Belt, like Arizona, Florida, Texas, Georgia, which have a significant Republican population, um, if you're undercounting two points, 
that's a, that covers the spread for Donald right. Trump. However, we should, have also, we should have noted that there is one little uh, ray of hope for Republicans in Texas holding on to Texas, not just one. But yeah, I, I think I saw that Kamala Harris is going to Fort Worth today to have a big rally with Julian Castro and Beto. So that would that should drive up the Republican vote right. because she's, she has an yeah. interesting effect um, on voters. Right. And you had you know, Joe Biden making a very big ostentatious display today going to Minnesota, which is no one is on no one's radar except for me, because I said this the other day on the podcast, it has a competitive Senate race. Um, on paper, it's competitive for Republicans. It's probably not. It's one of those states that's been out of reach for them for a generation or more. Um, but it's always, you know, right there. It's tantalizing. It's like Texas for Democrats. It's tantalizing. It's, it's just it's just right there for the for the taking. But what's Joe Biden doing? He's going there to, in the event that there's a, there's something crazy that happens on election day. He spared the right. narrative that he didn't even go. Right. Okay. However, which is dog Hillary Clinton. To stay on the, the national question for a second, and and um, the figures that John brings up, I'm having a dissonance here because how do we square the job job approval factor with the Gallup finding that um, on the question of are you better off today than you were four years ago. Um, it is true. Trump is accurate when he, it is not hyperbole when he says that a, it is a record number. I think it's 56% of Americans today say they are uh, better off than they were four years ago. This is a record as compared to um, uh, re-election, re-election figures uh, in summer or fall uh, f- for past re-elections. Can I speculate on that one? Because another Gallup poll showed that roughly the same amount of people said that they just don't like Donald Trump, that they can't abide Donald Trump having a second term. I think John, John cited this poll earlier. And you can't, that dovetails with job approval numbers. If, if the, the right track, wrong track numbers, I think it's like 20% of people think we're on the right track at this point. Um, and Donald Trump's job approval numbers are languishing in the, in the low 40s, even despite the fact that people think they're better off than they were four years ago. So it's, it's just untethered to Donald Trump's I mean, job performance. People may not give Trump credit for feeling that things are better off, that they're better off than they were four years ago. That would be the answer. The answer is 10% of them or 12% of them would have to think that Trump gets no credit for the fact that they are more satisfied with their lives or think that their lives are in better shape than they were four years ago. That's been the case from the beginning with him, though. I think even among some of his, I mean, he's the in spite of president, right? In, in spite, <laughs> things are happening in spite of him. Like, and, and even when he does something yeah. that people on the right approve right. of, yeah. it's almost in spite it's, of. it's kind of a reverse Obama effect because I remember, you know, Obama's job approval numbers were always lower than his personal, um, right, and, uh, and cl- right. Yeah. Whereas Clinton was the famously the reverse. Clinton got high job approval numbers and had terrible personal approval numbers right. because people thought that he was a bad person. Um, but, you know, that question, you know, are you better off than you were four years ago, was a political question, not a polling question, right? It's the question that that Jimmy Carter posed to the, uh, that Ronald Reagan posed to the American people in that last debate with Jimmy Carter. And then thereafter, the bottom fell out for Carter and Reagan essentially won by 10 points. Um but it's not a political question. It was a political question in 1980 because things were so uniformly terrible in 1980 across all categories. We had hostages in Iran. Uh, there had been a nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. 
there had been gas lines. There was raging inflation. Inflation was about to take a terrible turn. Um, there was a, a horrible increase in the national debt to, you ready? Ready for this? The national, the deficit? Six billion dollars. It was sick. Can you believe it? The federal government was out of kilter. It's like Austin Powers. Six billion dollars. And so Carter did not have a good story. Did Carter didn't have a positive story to tell in any way, shape, or form, except for the Camp David Accords. He had nothing. He had nothing. And that was Reagan saying that Trump has something, right? Trump can say you know, uh, I did all this great economic stuff, and then the pandemic came, and we had to take measures to stop it. Okay, but he—he's not saying that. He was and on the campaign trail yesterday, saying, uh, "New jobs numbers, boring, boring, boring." Okay, I'm supposed to say this. I'm supposed to say. This. I mean, he's—he's he's literally again stepping on his own message. <laughs> No, well, no, but I mean, well, you know, so so those, you know, he he in, he indulges his his id at these rallies, and I'm sure he did talk. I didn't watch the rally speech. I'm sure he did talk about the great economy, and then he spins proffers this line, which is that we had the greatest economy in the world. We were just sailing to re-election. This was going to be the easiest re-election of all time. That is not true, and this is where I think the answer is to Abe's thing, like. When we had 3.9% unemployment, when we had, you know, significant economic growth, when uh, the disposable income of the, you know, poorest or the most modestly endowed of the of the American people went up by 3.9% or they had like $3,000 more in their pocket annually than they had had before. Biden was still beating him in the polling averages by six or seven points. Like that was before the pandemic. Before the pandemic. People don't like Trump. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't win if enough people like Trump in the right places. But this is actually where I disagree with Noah. Uh, Trump won, as we know, because he won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Uh, Those are not increasingly Republican states. Those are increasingly Democratic states. Pennsylvania now has a Democratic governor. It has two Democratic senators. It has a Democratic state house. Wisconsin turned out its Republican majority in one of the state houses. It has a Democratic governor. Wisconsin has Democratic governor and two Democratic senators, and 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 so on. So and and in 2018, all these states threw out moderate Republicans in favor of uh, you know in favor of Democrats in suburban swing districts. So. They're trending the other way. Okay. Well, I'm pushing back on you. Well, you're pushing back on me, so I'm going to push back on you. I don't think they're trending the other way. The upper Midwest is most certainly not trending more Democratic, not more so than it has been for the last my, generation, 25 years. Where they're trending Democratic in Republican states are in the Sun Belt, places like Georgia, Texas, Arizona, across the South, the New South. And the story of the upper Midwest to me is very similar to the story of Virginia. Virginia was a swing state for about 35 minutes. Um, it went Democratic in 2008 for the presidential election. It went Republican in the 2009 gubernatorial election. And the bottom fell out of the Republican Party in Virginia. And you could tell, you could see the atrophy in the quality of candidates that it produced, um, in part because of the fractiousness within the Republican Republican Party of Virginia over the Tea Party movement, the Tea Party wave, and this anti-establishmentarian sentiment that ended up taking uh, Eric Cantor out. Um, but the atrophying of the Republican Party in um, in Virginia was complete and total in a very short space of time. And you're beginning to see that now in places like Georgia 
where I think the, the quality of Republican statewide candidates there has been lackluster, to say the least, most recently. And you can see the trend there moving in the wrong direction. The opposite is the true in the upper in the in this case in the upper Midwest. The upper Midwest is beginning to produce some very competent Republican candidates who are who can effectively thread the needle between the establishmentarian sentiments that dominated the Republican Party in the last decade in the 2000s and the early 2010s and the populist kind of Rust Belt sentiment that Donald Trump managed to capture. I've been impressed with the quality of candidates there. And you have seen Republicans wait, make substantial gains in the upper Midwest hold on. in the course of the last five, six years in ways that we Noah, didn't expect that to be possible. Noah, there were Republican governors in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Four years ago. Right. As a result and they're all of 2015, gone. 2014. They're all gone. Yes. That okay. Happened. Yes. That, that Republicans, 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 Republicans were charging forward in the upper Midwest. Republicans were, uh, you know, were, were like surging in the upper Midwest. And the high watermark of that may have been the Trump election, which then reawakened the democratic sleeping giant in these places, which then went haywire. So yes, you're talking about like long-term secular trends, but we're talking about response to Trump. We're not talking now about long-term secular trends in partisanship. Oh, okay. Well, if we're talking about Tuesday, all is forsaken. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not saying I'm all is forsaken because there's no, we're not allowed to say all is forsaken. We can't say all is forsaken because then we are, oh, okay. you know, we are, we are <laughs> attempting the gods, uh, or, you know, like whatever we, we have, we have no idea whether all is forsaken. Uh, the, the trends in co in the Republican coalition yes. are pretty clear as they're moving away from the educated, um, more diverse yeah. suburbs of the South and affluent suburbs of the South and toward right. the upper Midwest. No, I mean, look, if the, if the, uh, if the Sun Belt is trending democratic and the upper Midwest isn't trending Republican, then we're like in early sixties territory where Republicans, you know, have nothing, <laughs> You know, Republicans then had like California, by the way, uh, you know, to like, you know, to be a, a counterbalance to a lot of other places. And they're not going to have that either. I mean, if you have, you know, uh, this is the, you know, this is the nightmare scenario for anybody on the right, which is that, which is that the uh, areas of the country that, that, uh, that sort of support uh, lower taxes and less regulation, this and that are swamped by cultural liberalism. Uh, as a result of the sort of the uh, net immigration to these areas by cultural liberal, young cultural liberal people who don't really care about any of that. And, and meanwhile, the upper Midwest, uh, you know, uh, sort of like uh, has had its fill of, or the, the culture war is like very present in the upper Midwest between very Trumpy people and people who hate Trump. And we'll know, we'll know, we'll have a pretty good understanding on Tuesday Who's stronger? Uh, so I, can I can I raise two examples and see because I think that the question of the future of the Republican Party post Trump, if it's post Trump, you know, next week or post Trump four years from now, fascinates me because. But but the issue that you just raised, John, about you know the sort of culturally liberal environments. There's an ad that's been making the rounds. I forget that is it if 
that, I don't know, there's some organization that, that's sending it around. And it shows all these people, you know, with their head in their hands, lamenting the fact that their tax refund checks were smaller this year because of Trump. And as many people pointed out, yes, because the government didn't take more of your money than it should have. You didn't give them an interest-free loan for months. That's why your refund is, is smaller because they did. Anyway, what it struck me is it, people were incredulous about this. They're like, this is another terrible thing Trump has done. And that, to me, the kind of the level of the lack of civic education about how taxation works was was shocking. But that message is landing with a lot of people, a lot of people who I think were fertile territory for the Republican message of entrepreneurship and lower taxes. And and it, that's been kind of lost. Trump has not been the person who's made that message as president. That's not been his thing. It has traditionally been a Republican Party thing. And so there's that example. The other example is that we're already seeing this uh, the last few weeks, the the hardcore never Trumpers basically saying we will we will if we if Trump loses, we're going to enact a purge in the party. We're going to call out everybody who wasn't standing with us. We are the brave and courageous warriors. Everybody else is terrible. Um, so there's going to be a there probably will be a little bit of a of a showdown there. Um, and I just wonder if you think that's going to affect um, electorally affect, uh, you know, in the next two to four years, election cycles for Republicans, or will there just be retrenchment and the never Trumpers and the anti anti Trumpers will all just kind of okay. bicker on cable? We, we should we should get to that. Um, and I have uh, some inter- I have some thoughts on that that I think are interesting. But give me a second to talk to you guys about our sponsor today, the Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, very different kind of sponsor. We've been talking about them this week. It's a podcast, well worth listening to. Apple named one of its best of 2018, aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker. Come to your own conclusions about what's happening and figure out what's going on, even inside your own brain. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what interests you. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made billions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. There's also shows about uh, birth control and how it affects the way we look at our partners, how the pill works, the fight to defend the free world with J.R. McMaster, how to change anyone's mind with Jonah Berger. The podcast covers a whole lot, but one constant is Jordan Harbinger's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You should find something you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight tweak in your in your mindset that changes how you see the world. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I got a scenario for you. Uh, Trump wins in, uh, Trump. Uh, Biden wins on Tuesday night. Wins going away. Uh, Biden might even win Georgia by a sliver. But there are two Senate races in Georgia right now. One is a special election uh, that Kelly Leffler, uh, who was basically picked by the governor to replace the uh, late Johnny Isaacson, uh, she's up. And then there's the six-year term of um, of uh, David Perdue. Uh, what? I just want to note that. Oh, I'm John sorry. Isaacson he's not dead. Not wait. Dead. So who? Wait. <laughs> he's no, no, he's dead no, no. Isaacson. That's the Purdue. No, that's the Purdue Ossoff race. It's <laughs> yes. Isaacson, and Kelly Leffler yeah. is replacing. I can't remember. I, I apologize to Johnny Isaacson and his family. Enjoy your retirement. Have a wonderful time. 
okay, so there's a special, and then there is a, a you know there is another race, and in according to Georgia's rules, you have to win fifty percent of the vote to win the seat, and if you don't, there's a runoff. So there will in the uh, in the race uh, for the for the seat for the the six year term. There are four or five candidates, and it's very clear that there will be a runoff. And it was—it's almost—it seems now almost certain that the runoff will be between um, Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock, the Democrat. So there, I've seen a couple of polls though where Warnock is getting right, like 48% but that—that's also if if Warnock gets forty-eight percent of the vote, Biden will get fifty-five percent of the vote. So I, I'm a little suspicious of that. But anyway, you got to get fifty percent. And then uh, Ossoff and, and Purdue, that's a that's a nail biter, and you really could have a situation in which you know it's like forty nine forty nine, or forty nine forty eight, and you know the libertarian gets whatever is left over. Twelve different you know minor party people get what's left over, and you could have two special elections after the election before inauguration day. Because I think the election is literally the Saturday before the inauguration, January 19th. So, suddenly those elections are going to determine, it's maybe likely those elections will determine the control of the Senate. Unless Democrats have such a huge night that they win, you know, 51 seats, you know, don't need the two seats. Uh, in Georgia, whatever, uh, it's possible that this will determine the c- c- control. And so uh, we are going to have the first special elections of the Biden era before Biden is president. The ones where, and what are Republicans going to say in those elections? You need to check the ambitions of this runaway Democratic. They're going to have the White House. They're having the House. They're talking about packing the courts. They're talking about doing away with the filibuster. They're talking about changing all of our norms. Vote for our guys as a check on this runaway ambition. That's a pretty good message. But it's also, in in these conditions, the message that just lost the race nationally. No, because you, can, you can't win it nationally. But no one, no, honestly, I don't think anyone's really making that. The only, we've heard some people around Tom Tillis start to make that argument a couple of weeks ago. I haven't heard a single candidate run on that message. And those Republicans are going to raise $200 billion in the next two months simply for this reason, if if the scenario I'm laying out happens, where in fact this is where control of the Senate is decided. So you're going to have the most important special elections in American history taking place to check the Biden administration before there is a Biden administration, which is one of the reasons why these runoff rules are so demented about. and why these states that come up with these runoff rules, you know, need to, you know, be uh, taken and, you know, dunked in cold water because this is like insane. What is it? Collins? Doug Collins? So it's the runoff is uh, between Kelly Loeffler is the sitting appointed no, senator and, and Warner. Collins. Right. Collins. Uh, right. The, so, right. And Warner. Is the Republican who's challenged? He's the more Trumpy Republican. They're both running to be right. the Trumpiest Trumpies in the in the room. Dave Perdue, um, who's he's, the incumbent, not, he's not he, the he's incumbent. incumbent senator uh, against. No, he's, he's no. Not. 
No. Purdue was the yeah. Purdue was yeah, the secretary right. of what? Yeah. He was the secretary of HHS, right? right? Because, Wasn't he? Yes. Am I am I crazy? Right. Because he was the governor. Wait, was hold governor on. Sonny. I can't believe I don't Sonny know. Sonny Purdue was governor. No, 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 no. He is the sitting. No, <laughs> he's the sitting annoyed. senator. He is the sitting senator. Okay. He was. So yes. Okay. So I don't I know what the hell I'm talking about. Okay. Congratulations. Go <laughs> ahead. Both of us got very confused there. So anyway, yeah. So um, Dave Perdue uh, canceled his final debate and with with Ossoff uh, for some ostensibly valid reasons. He was being insulted during that debate. The, you know, Ossoff called him a crook and basically alleged he was involved in criminal activities. And so, yeah, don't don't bother with that. But what's he going to do instead? He's going to have a rally with Donald Trump. Um. Which could, if you're really reading into the tea leaves, not be so great because his poll numbers aren't really fantastic. And if you're focusing in the last couple of days, instead of an, a televised statewide debate, having a rally with Donald Trump supporters, you have base mobilization issues. And if you have base mobilization issues and that's what you're focusing on in this environment, um, I, you, you know, could be facing I some didn't very think real that Osof really had a chance, even though the polling was close. Have you did you watch the footage of the confrontation between Ossoff and Purdue, where Ossoff like went for Purdue's jugular? The fact that he quit that debate makes him look like a weakling and a coward. I mean that that was that is yeah. not good optics. But this is that is a bad optics. About like he's saying, I don't know how to talk to this guy, and he's being mean to me, so I'm not going to debate him. I mean, Ossoff should be able to beat him up for four days over this. That was that's an embarrassment. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty weak move. And Kelly Loeffler has been singularly unimpressive. Um, her really ham-fisted efforts to appeal to a conservative base, the Attila the Hun ads, her her pretending as though she had never heard of the Access Hollywood video—it's just embarrassing. Just just really like yeah. maladroit. And it seems hard to envision her actually pulling it out if she ends up winning. And it, it also doesn't. I mean, she's she's done better in the polls recently, but it was very competitive between her and, and Doug Collins. She's for a really long time. fascinating to me because she should be she should be campaigning the way Melania uh, acts as first lady. There's this wonderful piece that Caitlin Flanagan has written in The Atlantic, reviewing the book by the friend of Melania who betrayed her, and she makes some really good points about Melania. She's, so when the Access Hollywood tape came out, remember Melania did the the. Uh, required interview that the wronged wife always has to do when a politician makes such a such a mistake. And she was completely unflappable. She's like, it's fine. It's really not that big a deal. I mean, she was actually pitch perfect for the for the brand. And I've been surprised. I mean, uh, Kelly Loeffler has just been off on everything. I don't know if it's her elitism. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But she just is. She's just off brand, even for her own supposed messaging. Right. Um. So anyway, I'm just saying, like, uh, you know, the, 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 the speed of American politics, you'll remember that John Ossoff, the candidate here, um, was involved in the first big special election of the Trump era uh, after um, Trump picked whoever the hell it was that he picked to do whatever job in the cabinet he picked. Again, I think it was Health and Human, it was Tom Price in Health and Human Services and he left his seat in Georgia, and then there was this like uh, crazy, and this this was where you knew that Democrats were lit, like because they were they sent forty million dollars to John Ossoff, who was like a twenty nine year old who wasn't even from Georgia, you know, like neurasthenic little you know odd guy, and then he was uh, up against a uh, you know sort of like a solid kind of uh, middle of the road conservative. 
Um, and, and they almost pulled it out, uh, if you remember, and, and Osof almost pulled it out, but I think he ended up losing by five or six points. And then there was a lot of, right. And there, there was a lot of laughter. Kind of do you remember? There was a lot of kind of, ha ha ha. You see the Democrats think that they can do it. And, you know, rather than like read the tea leaves and say, oh man, like they are, you know, they are going to do whatever they can to take us down. And then 2018 happened and, you know, um, while Trump was saying, they were saying, I think we're going to get seats in the House because people really care about this caravan. There came the wrecking ball, you know, in the House. Yeah, that was a special election in Georgia's 6th Congressional, and Karen Handel right. won by 11,000 votes. But that has a partisan lean of uh, eight points yeah, right. in the Republican so, direction. By the way, let's get to the partisan lean thing. Abe, I, I, I feel bad because you, 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 uh, you seem to not have uh, been able to express yourself on this. On this well, podcast. no, I was when you know when you mentioned the the, the twenty eighteen um, election that that I think w- is an example where the argument of okay now we need a check on 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 the winner um, was very effective. Right. If you have a circumstance in which the control of the Senate comes down to those two races, right. we've never had that before. I mean that that that's like the, this is a totally new thing to be able to isolate it. You know that's why you could never use that as a single issue, right? Suddenly it will be the only issue. Do you want Biden to have the House, the Senate, and the you know and the presidency well, to enact his will, or do you want there to be a body that is going to is going to slow him down in a, in a Republican leaning state, even if Biden wins? What I mean, what I meant about well, that's the message yeah. that had would have already failed nationally, <clears throat> is not not the okay, not specifically okay. We need to check on on the winner, but fear of a Biden presidency generally, right? Right, w- will have proved insufficient on some level. But that's all Trump has done. All Trump I mean, has done is great. try to generate right. fear of a Biden presidency. It's socialism. It's higher taxes. It's you know defunding the cops. It's you know riots in the cities and all of that. And and look, maybe it'll work. I mean, maybe you know what he's done has you know penetrated the national id and has gotten in there, and it's not showing up at the polls. And Trump will will squeak out a, a victory. Uh, it does not appear to have worked. But that's why I want to get to one other thing and maybe close out with this, which is yeah. Go ahead. Well, briefly, before we, we do that, um, in order for that scenario to get to within an ace of that scenario playing out, Republicans have to hold a lot of territory that's still pretty vulnerable right now. Pretty much everybody expects Cory Gardner in Colorado to not pull it out in November. And Sue Collins in Maine is in a lot of trouble. And if you lose those two races, you have to hold Montana, you have to hold Iowa, and you have to hold North Carolina, all of which are sort of on the bubble. Montana, less so. And Iowa and North Carolina are, are yeah. suddenly competitive, whereas they were looking bad for Republicans. But they have to hold those two. And then you still have those two races in Georgia. And so, yeah. you know, I to heard, determine control I heard last, of the Senate. I heard last night from that. somebody who has seen a lot of polling uh, that we maybe haven't seen that Collins may... Uh, be seeing some rays of light over the last four or five days. She's a very good, she's a very good campaigner, and she's a very serious person. And she, uh, anyway, that's what I heard is that there's some. She did a weird thing by you know doing the whole voting against Barrett thing because one of the one of the main 
you know, points in her favor for among Republicans. She has been something of a thorn in the Republican side for a long time, being a moderate from Maine. But her her speech in favor of Brett Kavanaugh really brought her back home in 20, 2018 and it saved Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. And she was something of a hero for it. And her decision to vote against it, I don't think, won her any favors with Republic vote against. That Barrett, is a very independent state, though. That there. Maine has, I think, the largest number of independent voters of any state in the country. So it's 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 got weird. It's politics cut in weird directions. But if there are rays of light, there are rays of light for Republicans. No, no, there are rays of light there specifically. That's all I'm saying. She has a. But you started to see good numbers in Iowa, where um, Joni Ernst was in a lot of trouble in September. You started to see good numbers for Tillis in in North Carolina. I mean, they're not they're not affirmatively uh, good numbers. They're not affirmatively. They're better. They look better than they did. They're still like you would still. If you're looking at this, you would still want to be the other person. I think. So, I mean, if that happens, there's if the Republicans manage to pull out control or even a 50-50, yeah. there's got to be a lot of tickets. Anyway, playing. so I want to get to the final point about the shy Trump voter, which is essentially the last card in, you know, in Trump's deck. There will be a historic polling error because Trump voters will not say they're Trump voters. Either they will lie and say they're Biden voters or they're simply not answering the phone or they're not visible to the pollsters, right? That is particularly in the three states. I have a logical problem with the shy Trump voter theory. Can I, can I share this with you? If you are a shy Trump voter, you don't live where they say the shy Trump voter is going to make the difference. If you're a shy Trump voter, you're not living in rural Pennsylvania because everybody around you, where you live, a majority of people are Trump voters. If you're a shy Trump voter, you live here. You live in New York. If you're a shy Trump voter, you live in Illinois. You live in, you live in, there are places where you can sort of see maybe a sort of liberal suburb of, of Detroit. Maybe the, maybe the ring suburbs of Detroit, Birmingham or, or, you know, Woodland Hills or, or, or the, or the suburbs around Cleveland, Shaker Heights, some places like that. Maybe you're a shy Trump voter there. Because you really do sense that there is social desire, you are socially undesirable if you say a vote for Trump. But when Robert Cahalli of the Trafalgar Group and other people talk about this, they are saying that amazingly there is going to be this surge in the shy Trump vote in places where you don't, there's no reason to be shy. And I, I think there's a logical inconsistency there. I, I will push back on that. Okay, good. Um, even in those places, while you would have no reservation about telling your neighbors or your friends that you are voting for Trump, it is an entirely different proposition to get a phone call from some officious stranger in this climate, especially, and let's not forget that the, the, the Trump base is, um, infused with paranoia to then tell that caller, that stranger from some anonymous organization that you are indeed voting for Donald Trump. I think, I think, I think it's still, it would, all your reservations would, would kick in anyway. I mean, I can see that on the margins. I can even see that as being a factor in, you know, 
10 to 15 percent of cases i'm there, saying that that is the, okay that, if, okay if if the shy trump okay. voter thing is real is all i'm saying then, then there's also there's also a kind of elusiveness about the 2016 trump voter that we still which is why we're still having this conversation about the elusive trump voter and that's that there are i mean and i think it's very difficult for prof- people who professionally follow politics for a living or or our professional pollsters to, to step back and see this which is that most of the country will wake up the day after the election and and be fine with whoever won, right? We're not, there are going to be in some hotspots. I mean, I was telling you guys before we started recording, they're boarding up some businesses and stuff down here in DC, you know, in, in advance of any potential unrest. So there's some parts of the country that that's not the case. But for most people, their lives are not ruled by their politics in quite the same way as, as everyone who sets the agenda is. And I think there are a lot of people who are literally thinking, well, the economy's bad, but was bad before. It's improved under Trump. My prospects have personally improved. But then there's this pandemic, and everything he says is inconsistent, or I don't like the message. And Biden, everybody knows who Biden is. He can't be that terrible, or else he would have been run out of town already. So I don't really believe the hunters. I mean, they, they really do weigh a lot of different things, and it, none of which can be captured by a couple of simple polling questions. So I, I there might still be those folks around, but I keep coming back to the pandemic because the numbers in every swing state of COVID cases are going up, not down. We're less than a week from election day. That is going to affect, I think, a lot of people's choice. And they'll vote for Biden, even though, as we talked about, he doesn't have any dramatic policy differences in terms of what he'll actually do. But his message is very different. OK, so there's a piece in Politico in which uh, Kahali of Trafalgar is interviewed based on his theory. We talked about it last week. Rich Lowry interviewed him and people at Barton Swaim has an interview with him in The Wall Street Journal today. And there is also this guy whose name I can't remember uh, who runs the UCLA Dorn's Life uh, poll, which is not really a poll. It's a sort of, it's a longitudinal survey. They talked to, I think, 11,000 people uh, whom they've agreed to speak to over the course of a year. They actually pay them to talk to them, and they survey different elements of it over the course of time in different configurations. Uh, and in that poll... Biden is leading by 11 or 12. This poll was said to have been good in 2016, though the the guy who runs it himself said it wasn't good in this political piece because it had Trump winning by two points. And he said, well, you know, Trump didn't win. It had Trump winning by three points. Of course, Trump lost nationally by two. So he said, you know, as a, as a, in fact, our poll wasn't very good. He actually says in this, but he says that they tried to go with a question to help understand this social desirability bias problem, which is that you ask people not how they're going to vote, but how they think their neighbors are going to vote. And he says, and this is where I, you know, the social science of this is very fishy to me, but says people may be willing to say that their neighbors are going to vote for Trump uh, as, an, as, a, as a substitution for saying that they're going to vote for Trump. Like, I'm not going to vote for Trump, but my neighbor's going to vote for Trump. I don't really get how that works. I'm sorry. That seems really weird to me. Um, but th- that's what they're using as, a, as an effort to get at, you know, a shy Trump vote. And he says there that even though the polling has, you know, Biden winning by 11 nationally, if you factor in what people say their neighbors are going to do, Biden only wins by six. So there's a 5% swing in uh, Trump's direction. 
So take that as you will. Again, I don't really, I'm not sure that I understand what evidence there would be that people are going to say, my next door neighbor is voting for Trump, but I'm not. I, I don't know any, I, I mean, I, I'm not a social psychologist, but you know, I've read a lot of social psychology. I've read a lot of stuff about opinion surveys and stuff like that. And this is a new one on me. So I, I don't really know what what background what support structure there is using this question to say that it has any determinative effect. It's a weird version of some of the nudge behavioral science nudge theories where they ask people, they they come to people and say, we want you to take this positive action, like put solar panels on your house or recycle um, because all of your neighbors are doing this to, to, to kind of improve the environment. But it always is more of a positive action that you're not taking versus pointing out that someone else. It's very strange. What do you guys, I mean, no, what do you well, think? Yeah, well, you, or Abe, what do you think? It also reminds me of, you know, there's a, a sales technique where you where you tell the person shopping, um, these are very popular. <laughs> right. But yeah. but that's the weird point is you're asking people who I have some weird shoes for. because that works. <laughs> but they're saying this is very pop. In this version, right, the yeah, customer is saying those right. are very popular and I'm not going to wear them. <laughs> right. I don't really understand that. As as some kind of hidden, you know, message, you know, you, you know, using kind of like Morse code, blinking Morse code. I am voting for Trump while saying you're voting for Biden. I mean, it's like you're in the Hanoi Hilton, you know, avoiding the social, you know, don't not wanting to get tortured by the North Vietnamese, so you blink Trump while you say Biden, which is, I think, ultimately what people are saying about the shy Trump vote, but. Uh, I, you know, so I, I look. I don't know. Even even so, according to Doran's life, Biden wins. You know, a five point margin is should be enough for Biden to win the electoral college, supposedly nationally. Um, I just thought that that's a sort of interesting problem, and I do think you know that the thing about say Manhattan, where Trump I think got nine percent of the vote or ten percent of the vote last time, I'll bet you he gets fifteen. He might get fifteen or even twenty, and those are shy Trump votes. But they're shy Trump votes in a in a pool of Trump. You know, they're a pool. You know, and that here you really do. You know, it's like you say your your own kids will like go at your throat if you say you're voting for Trump in Manhattan. Your kids won't talk to you; they'll throw eggs at you. So you're you're going to go in the polling booth and quietly vote for Trump and all that. And we'll see if I'm right about that. Uh, I don't know. Okay, so we will uh, we will bid you adieu until Monday, um, and uh, we got to figure out how we're going to handle uh, the coming week because uh, if we're in for a long night, if Biden wins Florida, we're not in for a long night. I mean, we may be in for a long night because no one's going to you know say okay, Biden's won the presidency. Uh, but if Trump wins Florida, we're in for a long night, and we we probably won't have a winner uh, on election night. On Tuesday, what are we going to do on Tuesday? Yeah, we should just do no, movie we're gonna, reviews or something. We're going to talk so, about our experiences on the, you know, at the polling at the polling place. I already voted, so you did. <laughs> I voted by mail <gasps> yeah. in, in, in a city where my vote literally has no; it doesn't count it for counts anything because you can <laughs> see it, Christine. You can yeah, see it. <laughs> that's what I love about voting Republican in a. That's what the we're voting Republican in a in a you know in a deep Democratic place. Like you can see if you go block by block, you can see your vote. 
I, I did once, I will quickly say I did the first time I voted in DC, I, I was registered as a Republican. And when I went to my polling station, the woman looked at the, they have the register and everyone, there's a list of names and then there's party affiliation. They check, you know, to see that you're the person you say you are. It was like D, 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 D. And then there was that lone R and the nastiest look on her face appeared and she well, goes, oh. Well, I told this story <laughs> hilarious. three or four years ago. I don't even remember when uh, that I went to vote in a, a New York City primary uh, maybe in 2017 for, for the mayoralty, I, I don't even remember. And I show up at the polling place, which is very sparsely attended. And I say, I need the, I, I want the Republican ballot. And um, they're like, you, what? And I said, it, it, and then she said, you know, Phil, where's the Republican ballot? And so <laughs> in a drawer, they pull out the Republican. Now, granted, it was like 730 in the morning. But anyway, they pull out the Republican. They're, they're still wrapped in the plastic. Polling place has been open for two hours. <laughs> I was the first person to ask for the Republican ballot. So just just in case you want to know where I live. Anyway, um, so we will talk to you on Monday. For Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.